and welcome again to another episode of Mormon Matters Podcast, your thoughtful yet provocative weekly romp through all things Mormon, including current, including current events, popular culture, politics, and contemporary issues. I'm your host, John DeLynn. It's very good to have you with us. We are also uh, very pleased to have in the studio tonight uh, John Hamer, who is the executive director of the John Whitmer Historical Association. John is a cultural Mormon and an independent researcher, historian, and map maker. He's currently furiously co-editing a book called Scattering of the Saints, Schisms Within Mormonism, due out this September. Are you going to make it, John? Wait, we're coming down to the wire here, but uh, we're just working and working and working, so I, I think so, yes. Well, we believe in you. <laughs> Um, in addition, we have David King Landreth. Um, David lives with his wife Shannon and four daughters in Boston, Massachusetts. He's a software guy. He's an entrepreneur extraordinaire, and he blogs at mormonmentality.org and is the creator of the blog aggregator ldselect.org. David, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me on board. Oh, it's good to have you, especially as late as it is there. It's 11 p.m. Boston time, so thank you for joining us so late. You bet. And then we have, uh, last but of course not least, Blake Osler, who is an attorney residing in Salt Lake City, Utah. Blake is the author of several books on LDS philosophical theology, including the four-volume work Exploring Mormon Thought, published by Coford Books. Blake, welcome to Mormon Matters. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. All right. And also, we have to give a shout-out to our own Ann Porter, who for the second episode in a row is keeping time, which means, Ann, you better be on next week. All right, Ann? And Ann is going to text me and say, okay, John. So thanks, Ann. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, today we have a, a really fun topic. But before we jump in, we've got a little bit of news. Um, I guess the first bit of news that's interesting, and my heart goes out to all bishops and members of state presidencies of the LDS Church Worldwide, because, as we may have mentioned in a past episode, uh, the church has decided um, to implement barcodes on its temple recommends. And so lots of bishops and members of the church are furiously re-interviewing people where appropriate to issue the new temple recommends. And there was a fascinating article in the Salt Lake Tribune today, which was Saturday, August 25th, 2007, where Peggy Fletcher Stack walks us through a little bit of some of the early questions in the 1856 um, sort of temple recommend questions. And I thought I'd read some of, uh, some of these questions. You guys ready? Yeah. All right. So, you know, we'll start out with an easy one. You know, have you committed murder by shedding innocent blood or consenting thereto? So that's one of the questions. A second one that's probably a little less uh, dramatic. Have you cut hay where you had no right to or turned your animals into another person's grain or field without his knowledge and consent. Okay. <laughs> have you borrowed anything that you have not returned or paid for? Have you taken the name of the deity in vain? Have you branded an animal that you did not know to be your own? Do you oppress the hireling in his wages? And my personal favorite, can we have a drum roll, please? <laughs> do you wash your body and have your family do so as often as health and cleanliness require 
and circumstances will permit. <laughs> so I, I'm glad that they qualified that, just so that you know more people wouldn't be disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I don't I, know. Have we come a long I way? I think that was a big issue with the immigrants. <laughs> All I can say is the stench in Sacrament meeting must have been overwhelming. <laughs> So I, I think we've come a long way as members of the church as we can see how these questions have evolved. So uh, congratulations to each of you for doing your part, I guess, in that um, in that progress. It also mentions that a guy named Richard Packham, who I've actually corresponded with a bit, he used to keep a scanned image of fake uh, of a temple recommend up on his website, and apparently there were people who were downloading that and printing it out and using it to get in. To the temple ceremony. Have you guys heard about that? Fake temple recommends on the internet? That's yes. why they're going to the barcode. <laughs> Is that the main reason? It's the, one of the primary reasons. Now, who in the world would want to go to a LDS um, endowment ceremony if they weren't LDS? Only people a person with... <laughs> yeah, they want to see. I just say people are curious about... I mean, it's a, anything that's something that people don't know about or something that's sacred and kept secret i think that people want to know what's going on so didn't david john berger borrow a friend's temples recommend in order to attend the, the temple ceremony as research for his book who's who's that and did he admit it publicly i believe so wow he's the, he's the man who uh wrote the he wrote a series of articles and dialogue about the history of the temple ceremony and the different um ordinances within it and then it eventually became a book published by um published by signature books called the mysteries of god and he told everybody that he did that huh i've heard the story huh there's another interesting thing that it says here letters of recommendation had to be back in the 1890s had to be countersigned by the church president until 1891 when wilford woodruff who had to sign over 3,000 that year, delegated responsibility for determining worthiness to bishops and stake presidents. <laughs> 3,000 Temple Recommend interviews Wilfred Woodruff had to sign. <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool if we had one of those old Temple Recommends today? Well, yeah, sure, that would be I'm amazing. Sure. With his signature I would on imagine, it? I would imagine that there's going to be ones in the Church History Museum, or, and certainly in the archives they will have kept those. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Anyway, I thought you guys might enjoy that. Another um, another small bit of news that I thought we'd mention to show how prescient we are here on uh, Mormon Matters. The movie September Dawn has now been released to the theaters. And as I look at the uh, advertisement in the news section, in the in the movie section of my newspaper, the quotes include um, "bound to incite controversy." Paints an incendiary portrait and uh, a most impressive film. <laughs> now, whenever it's complimentary, I can barely read the name of the person that they're quoting. But, um, you know, it looks like Jeffrey Lyons called this a stunning, shocking, and powerful film. Although there are a lot of ellipses, so I don't know what words they left out. I it, saw the film. I saw it... Um, uh, Early in the afternoon, actually, the first showing that they had in the Boston area with a few of my Mormon friends. Was that today? No, it was Friday afternoon. What did you think? Um, I thought it was on the level with most of the seminary films I saw. 
It was, it was very bad. Um, there's, the very, there's a very poor dialogue in Star Trek Three between Darth Vader and Princess Leia, the love dialogue. <laughs> and most of the movie is, is very much worse than that. Um, oh my, oh in my. fact, it's, it's not good history, but the, it's, the movie is so bad that it actually distracts you from the poor quality of the history. <laughs> so you barely notice it. So you're saying it's worse than the George Lucas contrived dialogues in Star Wars 1 through 3? Yes. Wow. And I don't make that accusation lightly. That's, a, that's <laughs> you know, them's fighting words, David. No, he's absolutely right. We, we, we talked about it before when I got to see it. I got to see it a few months ago, and we talked about it on a previous episode. And I feel exactly the same way, that it was just such a terrible, ter- you know, terrible movie that it, it's not only just bad history, but it's bad bad movie i actually when it came out here now i've looked i always whenever i'm doing the reviews of of uh, movies i go to rottentomatoes.com and look at the tomato meter or tomometer yeah and the tomometer um for this movie overall all reviews is giving it a 13 percent positive review but if you go to what they call cream of the crop people who are actually uh, paid reviewers and things like that, it's getting a 0%. So there's, wow. there's not, a, not a single positive review. That's perhaps, that's perhaps the worst I've ever heard of. Yeah, it's pretty pretty low rating, and I think that everybody has kind of universally agreed about this movie. So, Wow. Well, it was interesting. There was somebody who was sitting behind us at the movie who was obviously not Mormon, and I don't know his background, but I, I, he didn't seem to be a kind of expert on, in this area. And he was talking to uh, the woman who was sitting next to him quite loudly through the movie. When they showed the Mormons doing very weird stuff, he was like, oh, those Mormons are terrible. Uh, and when it showed Brigham Young being a bad person, he would say, oh, I hate that Brigham Young. And uh, so, I mean, that, that actually made the movie more enjoyable for me. <laughs> but but I mean, there, there is going to be a certain element of that reaction to it, uh, which is, um, is unfortunate. Uh, and, you know, on the positive side, there's a sense in which it's an uh, a anti-gun control movie. Right, John? Uh, John Hamer or John DeLynn? Oh. John Hamer, sorry. No. That it's also, oh, that it's against gun control? Maybe so. I haven't, I, that I haven't heard. But. Well, because at the end, they depict the, um, the Mormons saying you have to give up your guns, and they're asking for a reason, and they're giving some of the standard no. reasons for gun control. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I don't want to spoil the movie for anyone, but I do, think it's <laughs> noting, I do think it's worth noting that Uncle Rico plays John D. Lee. Uncle Rico. Oh, yeah, from, from, uh, Napoleon from Napoleon Dynamite? Yeah, and he's very good, by the way. He's actually, he steals the scenes that he's in. Does he still throw a football into a, a tire or whatever he does in the desert in Napoleon Dynamite? Or? No, and he doesn't throw any stakes either. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I, I have to add our, our own. Um, we'll, we'll call her our producer. Anne has has informed us that there is a mo- there is a movie that uh, has a worse Rotten Tomatoes rating than September Dawn. And you guys want to guess what that is? It's Catwoman. It's Catwoman. <laughs> Looks like Catwoman. Is that starring? Uh, who is that starring? That's starring. Um, that was Halle Berry. Halle Berry. <laughs> yeah, now she's better looking than anyone in September Dawn. I'm surprised Halle Berry couldn't carry uh, Catwoman to be uh, better than September Dawn. But, you know, um, different strokes for different folks, I guess. Well, um, we, we did something entertaining and interesting, hopefully enjoyable for you all. 
we decided to go ahead and share with you some preparatory material uh, on our podcast feed in advance for this discussion. And the uh, audio presentation that all of you should have listened to for your homework before listening to these words right now is a, um, a presentation given at the Sunstone Symposium last week in Salt Lake City where Blake Osler, Mike Ash, and Kevin Barney, along with, uh, is it Richard Paul or um, what, what's his name, Blake? Oh, um, you're talking about Ronald my good Paul? friend. Ronald Paul? No, no, R- Randall Paul. Randall Paul. Where, where those four guys talked about this notion of inoculation. Um, and without any further ado, what I'd love to do is um, throw it to Blake and have Blake just sort of give us a quick recap um, for those who were too lazy to listen to the um, MP3. Blake, get us up to speed on this notion of inoculation, please. Well, the notion is exactly as the metaphor suggests. That is, uh, we're presenting something that, that might hurt a little bit in order to avoid something that might be very detrimental to a person. Um, the notion of an inoculation in this context is the notion of presenting various views that may be challenging to the faith of a person that are presented by a person who has um, a faithful background before it's presented or a person finds out on their own from a source that would be um, cantankerous or anti-Mormon or would not be sympathetic to the faith tradition and would therefore um, give an opportunity to a person to feel betrayed or like they haven't been dealt with in an honest way. And so that's, you know, very, very shortly, that's the notion of inoculation. And whether the church has a duty to engage in this type of inoculation. So, for instance, the the next question becomes, if regardless of whether there's a duty, is it a wise thing to do? Um, and if it's a wise thing to do, how does one go about it? And I suggest that the devil is in the details. What age, what are the appropriate for in which these ideas ought to be presented, and what is the scope of the duty, if there is one, to present um, this type of challenging material. And basically, you know, is the duty, for instance, to present the strongest arguments that one's opponent has um, under a rule of charity so that, you know, nobody's going to confront a stronger version of the argument later on, or is the notion that we simply introduce a person to the basics of the argument and then turn them loose so that they can explore the issues for themselves. That is, in a nutshell, what we discussed. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating theory. I'm really torn about it. Um, but, uh, you know, let's maybe begin by just um, getting reactions from uh, first John Hamer and then David, David Landreth. Initial high-level reactions. Well, I think that in the first place, and maybe probably on this panel, and it also I think on the panel uh, that Blake participated in at Sunstone, I think that there there isn't an overall disagreement that uh, inoculation, the idea of inoculation, is bad. That it would be better to just uh, that. It, well, maybe there would be some nice benefit of keeping everybody in a very blissful state of only having the positive and reinforcing information, but that that, that always is leaving people in a, in a state where, well, they may well encounter um, 
information that isn't supporting like that, and that that will that could that can lead them down a path that uh, is uncomfortable or leads them out of the movement or out of the church or any of those things. And so I think that the general notion that this sh- should be done somehow, I think I think was pretty I think re- received. Everyone agreed, I think, on that. It's just like like Blake was pointing out. It's a, it's how to do it. What um, what's the appropriate way to do it, and everything like that. That's complicated. Okay, so John Hammer, you you was, you you're basically saying that the the panel agreed. What what do you think? Do you think? Um, I think um, well, I think that we'll probably all agree that that part is the case. I think that um, that pretty much everyone's best off uh, by just taking the, you know, honesty is, a, is the best policy approach and that you're probably going to be better off if you're simply honest and open about things and, and you can still have a very positive uh, vision for, for your heritage and everything like that, but that, it's, that embraces even uncomfortable details. Okay. David, what do you think initial reactions to the, uh, to the concept? I agree with what John said, John Hammer, and I also, and I wonder if perhaps it's analogous to Bertrand Russell's idea that it's best to teach sex education before children have a prurient interest in sexual matters. Um, but it's also, there's an element of setting people's expectations, um, and it's, it goes beyond just, uh, you know, a notion that it's best to be honest. But I don't think that it's realistic to set members to have an expectation that they're not going to run into this kind of stuff. And so this um, notion of vaccinating them or inoculating them is really just a matter of adjusting their expectation to make sure that they're not uh, disappointed by what they run into. Okay. Well, let me, let me play devil's advocate just for – not devil's advocate, but let me ask a tough question. I'll start with Blake, um, and then I'll swing it back to the other guys. Um, the, you know, there are a lot of people out there who just make the accusation – they like to throw the word whitewashed out there, but they make the accusation that, you know, church historians or the church, and, and they paint it really broadly, has been, has not been honest or forthcoming in the history up until now. Now, I know that none of us take joy in criticizing the church or the brethren, so that's not where I'm hoping to go. But Blake, do you think that's a fair, uh, do you think there's any fairness to that accusation, any credibility to it? Or do you think there's no credibility? Or where would you come down on that? Uh, it's well, a sensitive I, question. I'll admit it's a sensitive question. I wouldn't broad brush. I mean, there are people who have been less than forthright, certainly, in, in at times. And there have been people who have been sensitive to the effect that what they're saying is going to have on others. And so they, they've wanted to give milk before they strangled somebody by forcing and shoving meat down their throats that they were going to choke on spiritually, if you will. Both of which are appropriate considerations at times. Um, we all do it with our children, and we do it as as uh, David right. said. We do it with our children with respect to sex education and the and if there are family secrets, then you know if a child's adopted, we wait till an appropriate age to tell them that they're adopted, and if they're an illegitimate child, we wait till an appropriate age where they can understand the concept so that we can address that with them, and it has to be handled in a sensitive and appropriate way. Um, but there. Are, there are satellite issues that I, I think arise. One is we've got to put church history in the context of their own historical times when they're writing. The way that the church historians have done history is very 
common of, for instance, when they were writing in the 19th century. That's that's the way history was written. It was a political and polemical type of a writing, and it was very common, especially for people engaged in a in a controversial area, and who wanted to buttress, you know, their their position. Um, and it, it's just the way they did things. And and you know, I'm not suggesting that that we don't have a better way. I am suggesting that to you know, suggest that they should be up to speed on the kind of, of historical information that we now have overlooks the kind of flourishing of historical information in the 60s and 70s and early 80s that have laid the foundation for a lot of what we now take for granted in Mormon history. Um, so let me just, say, let me just jump ahead. in there. So what I kind of hear you saying is that in the 17 and 1800s, history was a different animal. And I think Mike Ash, was it Mike Ash who talked about this a bit? It was. It um, was. He put this more into context that way. Yeah, I, I remember um, the, reading the John Adams biography by David McCulloch, and it talked about this notion of posterity letters. And what it was basically talking about was letters that he and Abigail would write to each other, where it was very clear to anyone reading them that he was writing for posterity, almost as if he were spinning or you know, using rhetoric or whatever to give a certain impression instead of just to present the facts. So is that well, kind of what you're it. saying was prevalent? Yeah, I keep a diary, but, you know, when I have a great intimate experience with my wife, I don't put it in there, <laughs> even though it's a, you know, it's a great and important part of my life. The fact is, is we're all self-editing in that sense, and um, what we deem to be relevant, and, and let me put this into another perspective at well, because there's another issue that's closely that's lurking closely by, and that's the issue of faithful history. Um, I used to be a lot less, how shall I say, um, my views about faithful history have changed in the recent debates between atheists, naturalists, and people who have religious belief. In one sense, and I want to be very careful about how I approach this, Mormonism just is a naturalism. By that I mean that there's nothing that happens that that is somehow beyond explanation in terms of either natural law or um, is a part of the naturalistic universe. On the other hand, we're not naturalists in the sense that we believe that there are realities that are beyond the realm of the five human senses and beyond the realm of human detection as we now know it, and that um, there are means of knowing that go beyond, for instance, the scientific method. And as a result, we're, we're metaphysically naturalists, but I don't believe that epistemologically we're naturalists. And that might be a distinction that doesn't have a lot of meaning to two people, but what it means is this. In the way we view the world, ultimately we believe that God is a part of a, of a universe. We don't believe that he simply created everything about it out of nothing. But in terms of knowing, we believe that there are ways in it to access truth and knowledge that are not limited by the usual scientific methods. Now, I ex fully expect David Landreth to disagree with me on this, and I'm hoping that he will. <laughs> but the bottom line is that why should I have to adopt the assumptions of an atheist in writing history or in approaching questions? Because if somebody's saying, why did Joseph Smith come up with the Book of Mormon, or why did he say he had a, a, a vision? If I'm a naturalist, I'm going to have to deal with the psyche and the naturalistic causes that created this uh, this. Um, imagination in him in, in a if I'm being charitable and, and the sheer fraud that he pulled off if not that's what I've got to go to and if I'm a believer those are not explanations for me the, the I believe that the explanation for that is that God 
um, appeared to Joseph Smith at whatever means he used. Um, and I think that's an important distinction. So that's, you know, those are important issues, and I wanted to raise them. Well, Dave, uh, warning you that probably some of our audience isn't steeped in a lot of the philosophical terms that you guys might engage in. Um, go ahead and, and respond to Blake if you have some thoughts, but try and keep it accessible to the to the common blue collar guy like me. <laughs> well, I mean that's the challenge. Is um, the history is a very complicated complicated thing, and there's a variety of different approaches to it. Um, it's hard for me to explain my biases in a way that isn't just inside baseball. Um, Blake's position, I think, is more accessible than mine, so it is kind of difficult for me to explain. But I would say that you have to approach history using the same um, assumptions to analyze uh, the evidence that you utilize in your everyday life. So if you're um, considering the evidence of angelic visitations from 200 years ago, whether it's Fox's accounts um, for the Quakers or Joseph Smith's accounts with the Mormons, you would use the same criteria for judging those as you would if your next-door neighbor said, I saw an angel. And that there shouldn't be a, um, you know, trying to, if you're going to try to look at what really happened, that you're obliged to approach it in a way that you would, that you would determine what really happened right now if it were in the present. So you're saying faith and history shouldn't mix. Is that, um, is that true or is that an oversimplification? That that's uh, that's kind of an oversimplification, but that's the gist of it. Okay. I, mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want, I don't want to disqualify like uh, Bushman's approach, where he tries to get inside of the history and tell the story from that point of view. But I think that once you do that, you surrender any pretense to trying to 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 having determined what really happened. John Hammer, kind of just leave that behind. John Hammer, did you have something to add? Yeah, I, w- I was going to say that if if you're taking. Uh, your own belief in in things that are, well, I guess, it was natural versus supernatural. So, if you're taking your own faith uh, as a as a standpoint uh, in your writing the narrative, and you're writing it to if you're writing it based on that, then in a way, I think you're only writing to the people who are sharing that same view. And so, if we're talking about writing history to a broader audience, I don't. I mean, the, the you have to include all of the other people who have very different beliefs or not beliefs and and so i think it's a little problematic i mean you can certainly write that Ed, but i don't know that it it's something that you would then publish at the university of utah press or a, a, a you know a, a regular history press it's something that you could have as a church book or a devotional book and publish through deseret book or covenant or anything like that well, that that brings up a really interesting point because you know um well i'd be interested to know if david and john um hamer would would agree with the assertion that that maybe in the 1800s and in mid 1900s the LDS Church wasn't as forthright or or did whitewash their history, but if you take what John Hamer just said and that is, it depends on who the audience who the intended audience is. You know, when you take the instance of, for example, Brigham Young deciding to rewrite Lucy Max Smith's autobiography, it, you know what he's basically doing is saying, hey, look. I am in charge of all these members of the church. I need to make sure they understand the story right. And since I'm their prophet, seer, and revelator, I have that right. And so I'm going to rewrite her autobiography so that they don't understand the story incorrectly. And in that context, is that totally fair? Is there anyone who would object with that 
uh, within the context of who the intended audience was. I'll throw that to anyone. I certainly don't think it, it would be something that most people would consider history um, by the terms that, by the standards that we have today, regardless of the audience that it's addressed to. So are we applying? Are we? Are I, mean, I think. I think that his goal when he when he did it. I mean, on the one hand, he's the he becomes the publisher, right? So if if that book, the manuscript had gone to a bunch of different houses, it could have been published by other, you know, the reorganized church as well. It could have been on the LDS church, and I think it has been published in different formats. I think that when he when he wanted to do that rewrite, um, he was concerned that. Uh, that some of these memories, which are, were a little foggy, maybe were, were would be viewed as authoritative, and so what, I, I think he put it into um, what's it, George A. Smith's hands, who was the historian of the church, and said, "Fix it." I don't know that he. But so anyway, so whether so the, his the motive might have been been to correct historical error. I don't know if it, I don't know if people agree with that now. I mean, obviously, it's nice that we have the edition by Levina Fielding Anderson, where we have all the different texts all right next to each other, so that you can make your own decision. And it's important also to realize that her um, her memoirs are a specific kind of historical genre. She's not do, uh, trying to aggregate information in order to write an objective history of her own life. It's a first person narrative, um, right. and that's you know a valid historical approach. Um, within certain boundaries, but once Brigham Young begins to say, I'm going to clarify this so it agrees with us more, it ceases to be a first-person narrative, a first-person memoir by, uh, by Lucy Mack Smith. Yeah, I would, I would think about um, Brigham Young or Joseph Fielding Smith or you know, whoever our main historians have been, I could see them not caring a whit about the technical meaning of the word history or even um, you know, whether or not they considered all points of view when they wrote a story. It seems like they had one objective, and that's to promote faith. And so I think that they felt like they knew who their audience was, members of the church. They knew what their goal was, which was to promote faith. And it seems like they they felt like that was the approach that needed to happen, that they would include the things that would promote faith and leave out the things that could damage faith and and that's sort of how they approached it. Just real quick, John or David, would either of you feel comfortable sort of saying, agreeing with the assertions that many anti-Mormons would lob, saying that the church has not been candid or forthright, even if you do so in a sympathetic way? Do either of you want to go on the record or are both of you hesitant to sort of uh, well, make that claim? What I would say is that rather than saying it hasn't been candid or forthright, I agree with what Blake is saying that the way history was written was a little different, and and certainly what what was especially true in the in the nineteenth and the middle of, through the middle of the twentieth century was that uh, that Mormons have can tend to have a uh, a culture of feeling feeling persecuted, and and the history is often written it was often written in a really defensive, reactionary way, and it's it's not. It's by our standards now. It, it, this is really bad history, and so you know, in a way, you could call that not forthright. You could call it uh, making very you know angry, reactionary, defensive, apologetic arguments that don't ha that aren't accurate. Also, but I mean, it was a, way, a different way of doing it. It wasn't professionals for the most part. Okay, David, any thoughts before I ask another follow-up question and then bring Blake in? Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I'm not willing to say that they haven't been candid or forthright at all, because I think that embodies an assumption about their priorities vis-a-vis uh, -vis their communications. 
And uh, I, what I would say is, is that the church has not always placed as its top priority um, being candid and forthright about elements of its history that challenge, that can potentially challenge its authority. So and I think it's arguable that it's not even the church's responsibility to necessarily be candid and forthright about that. Okay, so I'll I'll ask a question as I can hear some of our more stressed or unhappy listeners thinking, and then I'm going to lob it to Blake to set up some of the things that he said in his speech. And that's that, come on, guys, you're all waxing academic and esoteric here. You know, there were multiple versions of the First Vision story, but most of us who grew up in the 1970s and 80s and 90s only heard about one. You know the 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 version of the first vision of, of the Book of Mormon translation that we all know bears little resemblance to what the actual record shows with the peepstone in the hat. Yet all the paintings any of us have ever seen, unless it was depicted by an anti-Mormon or an ex-Mormon or something or a disaffected Mormon, shows the translation process happening in a very different way than what actually happened. I can hear my listeners, some of them, just screaming, saying. You guys aren't. You guys are wrong. The church has been dishonest. They've covered this stuff up, and um, they, they were embarrassed by it. And and so you guys are just being overly sympathetic or esoteric, and and you know you're 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 not calling a spade a spade. Blake, what would your final reaction to that be? Well, simply that the people who are writing the history weren't weren't really professional historians. A B, their purpose wasn't to write professional history for the most part, and C, when it got to professional historians writing the history, they used all of the sources they could. They went digging. I mean, when do you think the 1832 account of the First Vision was actually published for the first time and made available? Was it, in the, mean, you, was it the 1960s? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Are you suggesting that somebody writing, for instance, in, in the early turn of the century should have known all about it and discussed it? <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, so I, w- what I'm saying is the, the purpose, the intended audience, all of that has to be taken into consideration. Look, I... B.H. Roberts was not the greatest historian who ever lived, but we owe him a great debt of gratitude. And, you know, the purpose for which he was writing is, given the best he could, coming from the background he had, I really believe he did the best he could. And and frankly, he was miles ahead of where most of the people (laughs) were in his day, because I've read a good deal of the histories written during that time, and and he did a pretty good job. And so, you know, I... I guess I like to view people, and, and I always have the assumption, I believe they're doing the best that they can, and, and I like to ask myself, why are they doing it the way they are, and do I really disagree with their motives in that sense? I, just just a, you know, a, a, an observation, I guess. Okay, yeah, well, that's fair. Okay, well, so let me ask this next question then, and this is going to be one that everyone's going to go, duh, but I just want to get out on the table. Um <clears throat> Is it is it true and valid then that that learning the factual history really can damage a testimony? I mean, a lot of people when they learn the history and it causes and, and they and they become disaffected, you know, then people will say things like, "Well, they never had a testimony to begin with," um, you know. So I guess it's fair to ask the question: Can accurate history damage a legitimate testimony, or uh, is a legitimate testimony impervious? Um, uh, to factual history that may be disturbing. Blake, well, I'll start I actually, with you. Yeah, since I gave another presentation at Sunstone that kind of addressed that, um, there's an interplay between one's total evidence and the best explanation and, and a testimony. 
and what a testimony is, the kind of knowledge that it is, the interpersonal dimensions of that knowledge, the, the notion that, that uh, feelings are essential to cognitive assessment and so forth. Those are all very large questions. But the bottom line is, of course, finding out that the world is different than one assumed can be upsetting. Um, I don't think that anybody, for instance, approaching the issue of the Book of Abraham with the assumption that Joseph Smith thought that he was translating Egyptian papyri that had been pressed by the hand of Abraham and finding out that the papyri come from 100 AD could possibly not come away thinking, oh my gosh, I have been deceived. Um, you know, so those kinds of things have to be assessed and whether or not a person's background knowledge and assumptions are accurate all of those issues have to be brought into the discussion. So, so that brings us to one of the, for me, one of the one of the coolest parts of that presentation, um, where Kevin Barney basically says, "You know what? Give me. I'd much rather try and ex- you know give me the worst possible uh, discrepancy between the facts and what people's perception were." And he threw out polyandry. He said, "I'd much rather explain polyandry than explain people feeling betrayed or lied to." by the church and how it represents the history. David, do you have a thought on that? Well, yeah, I I think that uh, people build their image of the church based on the facts they learn about it. And when they learn that many of these facts are false, or if they learn that many of these facts are false, it can create a palpable distance between them and and the church. And there's not a sense in which they can um, necessarily assert that this new image of the church that's been created is what they have a testimony in. Right, right. Yeah. What do you think, John? So, oh, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, so I mean that's I, I do think it can damage a testimony and um this disconnect that it creates that usually uh is given expression to by feelings of betrayal um and disillusionment uh, is a very um very difficult thing to overcome because it does have to do with realigning feelings and emotions that have been built up over years and years and years and years towards something that they now feel is fake. Yeah. What do you think, John? Well, yeah, I was going to say, if I was responding back to your earlier part of your question, whether um, the person who believes this thing and has the testimony and believes so strongly, and then they and then they find out information that is unsettling and it's a rock that the their boat crashes upon, uh, I don't think that that means that they didn't have a testimony to begin with. I don't think that you can say that. I think people had very very valid beliefs and and faith and and like people said that these kind of things challenge them right right well so th- this goes let, let's let's turn now to this question of whose responsibility is it um uh, i have i have personal thoughts on this and i'll, I'll talk to him about it at the end but you know so let's just put up the argument why shouldn't the church do what fair has done fair fair or the tanners if you want to include them they've just put up this big directory of all the issues that could cause anyone any cognitive dissonance or stress, and they've got an explanation for each one. I mean, the, the, we were led by prophets, seers, and revelators. These are scriptorians. These are inspired men. They have, let's say, a direct ins- inspirational access to God. Why can't they set straight polygamy, polyandry? Why can't they set straight Adam-God theory, uh, historicity of the Book of Mormon, why can't they just, you know, Book of Abraham, why can't they just lay it all out there, give us a place on their website to go to and say, here's the deal on polygamy, here's the deal on all these issues, members read it, 
and that's the official position. Here's where the history was wrong. Here's where it was legitimate. Here's where we made mistakes. Here's where our doctrine really lies. I mean, you can't even go and find what the doctrine is. Um, you know, why shouldn't the church just make this big directory and, and solve the problem? Blake, we'll start with you. Well, first of all, it's because we're an open-textured doctrinal church. That is, we don't have creeds, and the way we come up with what our doctrine is is a very complicated uh, system of not only weights and authorities, but the way that we approach our worldview at all. Um, moreover, and I, I really think that, that the answers, you know, the church has at times um, actually linked to fair articles and farms articles, and I think that the appropriate thing for the church to do is to leave all of this in private hands. Because the church doesn't want to get tied down, because what we're dealing with here isn't revelation or scripture. We're dealing with scholarly or best, you know, guess types of explanations for things that are in constant flux, things that can change, things that are based upon evidence. And anything based upon evidence is going to be subject to reassessment, new evidence, better arguments. Um, what is the best explanation for everything we're seeing? And so once we enter this kind of arena of discourse, the the standards of truth change. And if the, for instance, if the church were to give an explanation um, at the turn of the century for why it's reasonable to believe that all Lamanites are descendants of Hebrews, would look very, very different than the explanation it would give now for why the DNA argument isn't valid. And yet, if you went back and said, oh, the church committed itself to a to a two-hemisphere model of the Book of Mormon. It can't change its mind now. That's the entire problem. People don't want the church to be able to change its mind. I don't believe that the church is best fitted to address these kinds of issues because the realm of discourse is really a different realm of discourse than the church can engage in. But doesn't that paint an interesting... Uh, it, you know, we talk about expectations. You know, I grew up with an expectation that, you know, and this is an unrealistic one, that the prophet... Oh, you know, picks up the bat phone and dials God to get the answers. And so if, if we can get scripture, you know, why can't we get clarity on who actually are Lamanites and, um, you know, whether or not polygamy is or is not doctrinal? And so well, that first, oh. I was going to, that first uh, scenario that you describe is what Leonard Arrington causes or calls the uh, marionette fallacy, that the prophet is simply uh, a puppet. And God tells him exactly what to do, and he just does it, and he has these direct conversations where knowledge is imparted that way. But if that's all that there were to being a prophet, then any one of us could be a prophet. I mean, if God appeared to us and said in this booming voice, do this, you know, we probably would. Um, the reason it's difficult to, for them to function as prophets, seers, and revelators is because as humans, they are um, put in a position where they rely on their judgment and their moral compass to make decisions on behalf of this church, which is, um, you know, an embodiment of the Church of Christ. So, but, but it does require a maturation of, of, uh, of how we, what we expect in terms of what a, what a prophet can offer and the revelatory process. I mean, when Gordon B. Hinckley goes on Larry King Live and when he's asked about polygamy and he says, uh, it's not doctrinal, or when in Time Magazine they ask him about Adam God, or whether God was once a man or whatever, and he says, I don't know that we teach it, I don't know that we practice it. That is a very different kind of answer that I would expect from a prophet based on my seminary CES-based upbringing than what he actually gave. And so 
I, I want to make it clear. That doesn't make me now believe that he's not a prophet. But I can tell you that it required me to definitely lower my expectations as to the level of direct revelation and, and, and literal, you know, clear, almost text, word-by-word revelation that I used to think that a prophet might receive. It It almost makes it sound like he's going by his best efforts just like the rest of us, and sometimes the prophet gets it right, and sometimes the prophet really doesn't know. But I wasn't raised to look at the prophet that way. I was raised to look at the prophet as the guy who either had the answer or could find out the answer. John Hammer, I mean, what, what I was going to say, think? yeah, if, if, if your original expectation of a prophet or the prophet was that God was constantly calling him up and ex- explaining to him about what, what, what really happened with polyandry, you know, every, every time that got uncomfortable, then I think that you're probably better off now to have a diminished expectations of what, what God is telling the prophet all the time. So, because, I mean, I think that's setting yourself up for that unrealistic But is, okay, am why I said... Why uh, wouldn't God just, he can just now, if he was going to do that kind of level of direct intervention, he could part, part the Great Salt Lake and just prove it's all the case, right? Well, <laughs> so. okay, so one, two things I'll just say, and then Blake, if you want to jump in, or David. I don't think I'm setting myself up for this. I think that that's, and I'm not saying that the the brethren at the top wanted me to think this, but I can definitely tell you that f- what my seminary teacher and maybe Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon doctrine would have led me to believe was that that's what the Holy of Holies is all about, and that's what the prophetic mantle is. I mean, if anything, if they don't give us an answer, it's because we're not ready to receive it. But I would say that I was I was given this impression through the CES and Seminary and Institute sort of experience that I had. And the second thing I'll assert is that I don't think I'm alone. I think that a lot of members of the church sort of conceive this model of what a prophetic revelation is. Blake or David, do you guys agree with that at all, or do you think that I was just an island, uh, an anomaly? No, I I agree with that. I think that there are still a lot of seminary teachers and bishops and just, you know, really good people who are members of the church who start out with what I call this first-level naivete. And, but, you know, as the fact is, I mean, I, I've had ne- numerous friends, for instance, who have gone through a, a school of theology where they study the Bible, and their faith is just shattered because they come from this inerrantist tradition and find out that Matthew didn't write the Gospel of Matthew, and John didn't write the Gospel of John, and half of the letters that are attributed to Paul weren't written by Paul. And, you know, that's not the same kind of challenge it is to Mormons as it is for those who believe in biblical inerrancy, because their expectations are such that if the Bible isn't precisely what they were told in Sunday school it is, then they lose their faith. And my my response to that is, look, this is simply a call to learn and grow and change, and, and, and as we learn, to change the way that we view things. It, it is a call to grow up in faith, in a sense. And I, I don't mean to denigrate those who hold these wonderful beliefs. The church actually has a motivation to want to, to maintain that kind of simple faith. They call it, you know, the childlike faith. Um, because it gives a greater authority to those and, and you know, you don't, if every time you make a decision, you, you're questioned about it all the way along. And if you can be wrong about doctrine, you can be wrong about where they should settle in Utah as well. <laughs> it, it makes leading a church very difficult because you can be questioned all the way along the way. But the bottom line is, is, is as we grow and as we learn, it becomes very natural to say, look, 
these people were doing the best that they could, and some had had you know insights and and uh, visions, and they learned something, but they didn't learn everything. Nobody believes that I know that the prophet is omniscient or is supposed to be omniscient. And we belong to a tradition which is very explicit that the prophet is not inerrant, that there's more revelation to come and he doesn't know everything, that the apple cart could be upset by what we learn tomorrow through revelation. So we have this kind of tension of authority wanting to be a, a community of faith and this community growing constantly enlightened knowledge. And, and there's simply a tension there, and it's just part of being a human, I suggest. What do you think, David? Um, yeah, I think it certainly is perpetuated, you know, from the primary song, Follow the Prophets, to the, um, uh, the correlated, uh, correlated materials that are used to teach classes. Um, and uh, it is an interesting issue because there's, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you want to teach people to be devoted to the prophet. There's a sense in which it's very good that he's such a beloved figure, but... Um, at the same time, you don't want to set people up to have these unrealistic, un unrealistic expectations, and um, it's a big problem. I mean, it's a problem I think that any organization that commands any kind of authority has to deal with. Be it the army, how do you, you know, within the army, how do you define what is mutiny versus what represents the legitimate act of a soldier in moral disagreement with a leader? Um, you run into the same thing in government with treason. Um, uh, and even, you know, when it doesn't escalate to that, whether it's insubordination or right. whatever. So it, it, it arises in all, it, it's not a uniquely Mormon problem is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, you know, so I go to work and I have, you know, there's these people that are this far above me and they're all executives. And I think that they're, you know, there for a reason. And eventually I learn that they're just morons like I am, right? Yeah, but you don't want to think about the church leadership that way, um, that they're just a little bit better than us. I mean... But but I guess in some ways there's a maturity to say um, it's it's harder than that. And John Hamer, I really do think you offer good consolation um, just by saying, you know, what type of if if this life is a test and a probation, if God was always telling us and giving us all the answers, what type of growing and learning experience would would this yeah. really be? Is that kind of how you how sure, you think yeah, about it? Yeah, I was kind of trying trying to say that, and then also, I mean, what, if you were to look at all of the scriptural precedents of prophets, all of these guys are not omniscient. They all have, you know, the, the uh, Jonah's trying to get away from from doing it, uh, from put, obeying his call. Uh, they're they're having committing sin. They're they're regular people in the scriptural precedents, and we also, I think, saw that. Um, that was more clear if you get really get into Joseph Smith that he was you know had to, to deal with the uh, the the dynamic of being you know human and very clearly human and doing all these sort of human things and making errors and mistakes and things like that and people were seeing it more in that kind of a when you when you were there right with the prophet I think that part of it and part of maybe the way you you started to have this expectation of the prophets today are that now you're in a situation where the they're so removed from the membership and they're so much older and you only see them in a, in the very managed ways and they're you know not showing maybe a more human side a lot of the time that maybe that's where that kind of a idea comes so that reinforces it just sort of the conference pre-written talks and uh you know highly highly planned events Oh no, it's it's much broader than that. We live in a culture of, of biblical fundamentalism, and and Mormonism is has a very strong st um, string of that in its teachings. The uh, 
you know, a lot of people come out of that background into the church, and I think that they simply bring with them and bring into the culture the expectation that, you know, if the if the scriptures are somehow wrong or, or misleading, then I simply can't trust anything. And I think it's much broader than simply the the managed presentation, and, and I agree there's a managed presentation of the way that the the brethren appear. And it's just a part of our culture. In fact, in larger part, it's it's also just part of growing up. I mean, I had one view of what a what a president of the United States is when I was a kid. I've got a very different view now. Yeah. And so, you know, sure. I, I think that it's just a part of of maturing in our view of, of of interacting with humans and knowing that, you know, there really is a lot of growth and and if people make mistakes, that's to be expected. On the other hand, you know, on the more fundamental things, um, if somebody wants to say, look, Joseph Smith uh, really did simply bamboozle folks regarding the book of Abraham, once we get to the more essential things and, and the more essential claims, it's not okay to say, well, he just screwed up. <laughs> those those things are very fundamental, and, you know, if a person is going to remain faithful, has to come to terms at some point with and I think that there's a very broad range, but if they're going to remain in the church, I think on the outside they have to agree that somehow this is in fact inspired of God and and that I can learn something valuable from it. And, and you know, over on the other side of the spectrum, um, God dictated this to Joseph Smith. He saw all the words in the in the Urimum Thummim as he was translating, and this is exactly the way it should be. Um, all of those views on the spectrum are, are within the church. And and we all hold somewhere along that spectrum. And, and on some beliefs, we're on one side of the spectrum. And on, I mean, when it comes to the word of wisdom, I don't, I, you know, I don't even dicker with the word of wisdom. I just live it. It's just not something I'm going to, to fuss with. When it comes to tithing, I want to talk about whether it's gross or net. <laughs> that right. kind of thing. Right. <laughs> 